sweet Never let me go You have made my life complete And I love you so Love me Welcome back to the Kaiku Podcast. Chris and Chris are with me. Hello, everyone. And we are here to talk about uh, Abeg's 35th favorite Nicolas Cage movie, Wild Your Hearts. <laughs> Is there a list? Uh, there's not. I guess, I guess guess. Just guessed. Okay. <laughs> Seems pretty low, but uh, you know, he's got a lot of good movies. Yeah, I mean, this is probably a, a top ten for Abeg. He watched all of them, I think. Uh, so, um, you know, I don't know where where this would where this would sit along the the Nicolas Cage hierarchy, but at least among the ones that I've seen, which is uh, you know a good handful, it's 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 up there. All I know is that I am sitting here with my snakeskin jacket, represents a symbol of my individuality, my belief, and personal freedom. <laughs> All right, Chris, shall we or shall you uh, get into this next uh, next edition of the Dave Lynch Pantheon? The next edition, sure. Um, so Wild at Heart was made uh, after the Twin Peaks pilot, but before uh, season one started filming. Uh, it was released between season one and season two of, of Twin Peaks. That's why we're talking about it now. Um, it won the Cannes Grand Prize, the Palme d'Or, which, can you believe that? Like, that blows my mind. Like, this is the one David Lynch movie that took that walked away with the top prize at Cannes, and it's Wild at Heart. Not Mulholland Drive or Twin Peaks or anything. No, it's it's Wild at Heart. Twin Peaks wouldn't win the Palme d'Or. It wouldn't be something that would be considered for it, right? Uh, the Twin Peaks movie. Oh, okay. That's right. Um, and Wild at Heart is a really interesting film. It's it's a road movie. It's based off of a novel by Barry Gifford. There's actually a sequel out there to Wild at Heart, um, not made by David Lynch. It's based off of a sequel novel um, that Barry Gifford wrote, I believe, and it's called Perdidas Durangos. Um, I haven't watched it, so I don't know how it compares to Wild at Heart. I just know that it's on my watch list because it is a sequel. <laughs> um it is a road movie starring Nicolas Cage and the always amazing Laura Dern. And Laura Dern's real mom, Diane Ladd, plays Laura Dern's mom. We got Harry Dean Stanton. We got Crispin Glover. We got we got Bobby Peru. I mean, William, Willem Dafoe. He is definitely Willem Dafoe here. He is not Willem Dafriend. We got Isabella Rossellini. We got Grace Zabriski, the mom from Twin Peaks. We got Sherilyn Fenn. Um, Audrey from Twin Peaks. We got David Patrick Kelly, um, Jerry from Twin Peaks. We got a lot of people from Twin Peaks in this in this movie. Um, it was cast by the Joanna Ray, who was the casting agent for Twin Peaks. And because it was made, you know, right there between the pilot and season one, it makes sense. So basically, the plot synopsis is Laura Dern's mom tried to fuck Nicolas Cage in the bathroom. Nicolas Cage wasn't having any of it because he loves Laura Dern which I, I understand entirely. There's some secrets. I won't spoil the secrets. But then Laura Dern's mom decides to kill Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage, in self-defense, goes a bit excessive and murders a dude, uh, murders the dude who is trying to kill him, gets sent to jail. What is it, like a year later, two years later? Something like that, yeah. He gets out of jail, and him and Laura Dern hook back up and break parole and start heading for sunny California. 
Um, the film, it's not really a vignette style, but the way that David Lynch uh, constructs it, it is basically a series of vignettes. It's what happens in this location, this location, not so much about the journey or some kind of linear progression of events that happen across the journey. It's just they, they stop off to go to a, a metal concert and Nicolas Cage ends up singing a Elvis Presley tune. Um, it's wild at heart. Um, and weird on top. So it creates this vignette style that eventually we end up in El Paso, Texas um, for the longest portion of the film. I think that's like the whole last half hour of the film. And one of the big things about this film is this is David Lynch's Wizard of Oz. Um, it's never been a secret that The Wizard of Oz is one of David Lynch's favorite films of all time. And he fills this thing with all kinds of illusions, direct references. Um, some of the events could kind of be very Wizard of Oz-like. It's his first dabbling in his the way. So it's it's weird to talk about it in context of his later films. But after this film, this is the last quote unquote normal film that David Lynch made. After this is when he swerved and got really, really weird. Um, even with Twin Peaks Season 2, it's, that's where we see him just kind of go off and become what we know of as David Lynch, the weird maniac. Um, in his later films, he likes to take the plot and remove bits and pieces that transform the film into a more abstract idea. We see this with Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, and Inland Empire the most. Um, this is his first dabbling with that. It doesn't feel like it. Um, it just feels like a weird, interesting film the first time you watch it. The first time I watched this, I think I gave it three and a half stars, uh, but I'm up to four and a half now because the more of his filmography you watch and the more times you rewatch Wild at Heart, the more interesting and weird it gets, believe it or not. Um, so that's where the vignette structure comes in. Is That's actually David Lynch removing important bits of information and trying to abstract the story. Uh, there's also a nonlinear structure wedged in here. Um, it's really hard to notice, but there will be a scene that takes place, and then it'll cut back and forth with another scene. However, the opposing scene is noticeably progressing through time, but we keep cutting back to the same scene that we saw earlier so that it's not progressing in time. Uh, let's see. A good example of that is later on in the film when Laura Dern, uh, spoilers already, Nicolas Cage goes back to jail and gets out of jail six years later. Laura Dern goes off to see him, and we see her mom sitting there screaming and kind of crying and guzzling a martini. The rest of the movie plays out, but it keeps cutting back to Diane Ladd's character, Laura Dern's mom, um, in the same position on the ottoman, drinking and guzzling and crying. It keeps cutting back to that, but we're noticeably moving further and further along in time as we follow uh, Laura Dern meeting back up with Nicolas Cage and all the various events that's not really worth spoiling because they're pretty fun. Um, so it's stuff like that, that it's not really a nonlinear film like Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive, uh, but it, it does have nonlinear effects to it. Um, let's see, what else as a general idea about what the film is? The film is just wild at heart and weird on top, man. I love it. 
I love it, but it did take me a long time to get to love it. Um, I I would say yeah I kind of agree with your initial consensus where like it's a three and a half movie for me because this is the first time I've seen Wild at Heart. Um, having seen his later works, I exactly understand what you're saying. Like oh this there's like these hints throughout the movie that David Lynch is figuring out the abstract filmmaking um, and you know leaving as you said leaving little bits and pieces out. It'll become a lot more pronounced and, and obvious. This movie works coherently as like a start to finish. You don't have to pay a certain level of attention to it to still get a lot out of the movie. Um, and I mean, th- there's there's a lot to appreciate just by watching it um, with like your a lemonade, I guess, on the couch. Um, Nicholas Cage is great. Laura Dern is 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 fantastic. And um, I mean, everybody and he brings in the, like you know the stable of actors from um, a lot from Twin Peaks who. Um, put in their own really strong performances. Jack Nance is in it for a scene, and he's absolutely fantastic in the one scene he's in. <laughs> Just like Jack Nance, fantastic line reading yet again. Jack Nance. Jack Nance was a treasure. We lost him too soon. We did. Um, I would. I would say you know if there's one one thing I had with the movie that if I were to you know rewatch it again in the in the future a couple times that might dissipate is. It was a road movie, and it felt a little long. Like the whole on the road part, just kind of felt like there was like two or three too many stops on the road. Um, just watching it, that you know they didn't tie into the overall plot. But as you said, um, you know they kind of do, and, and there's bits and pieces left out. I um, mean, it is almost vignette style storytelling, um, and all that makes sense. Um, but watching it the first time, I was kind of sitting there going, okay, when's it really going to get to the, the climax? I, I know Willem Dafoe's in this movie. Where is Willem Dafoe? And things like that um, weighing, on my, weighing on my brain until really the last quarter, last third of the movie. Then it really picks up again. Um, you might say Act 3. Um, act um, is where the real bulk of a lot of the great stuff in the movie is. Uh, but getting there, it felt a little laborious. But again, if I were to watch it, not right now because I just watched it yesterday, but, you know, in a year or two with a little more clear head from the movie, first experience watching the movie, I could see a lot of those feelings going away and going, oh, yeah, this scene's actually great. I mean, this definitely belongs here um, and and so on. So that would be my one, why why I would agree, like, you know, first time you watch it, it's the three and a half, and then I could see as I watch it again and again, it moving up. I agree with both of you. Uh, I I did really like this movie. Looking back on it, I watched it about a week and a half or two weeks ago or something. And even looking back on it now, I'm liking it a little bit more. Um, I think, it's, as you all are saying, it's this rogue movie, the travel movie. And I think the uh, rewatchability aspect of this is just that you're going to know these characters by the point that you're rewatching it, obviously. And I think you're just going to like it a little more. You're going to like hanging out with uh, the the character that Nicolas Cage is and always plays. Um, you're going to like the um, the vulnerability and the um, the love that Laura Dern's character really really brings to light on the on the screen. And uh, Diane Lag is going to feel like so much more of a villain now now that you know all of the workings that that is going on behind the scenes uh i mean you're you're pretty familiar from the beginning but you you're going to be more familiar with how it ends up um and it's going to be much easier to put her 
and go with Velma's light rather than this mom that wants to fuck her daughter's boyfriend. It's very strange. It's very strange. <laughs> uh, thing to just say. Do you right. want to fuck Lula's mama? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> uh, I did mention in my in my Letterbox review that uh, it seems that Nicholas Cage was playing an amalgamation of literally every character that he has ever played or will ever play in this movie. Um, but then since I have watched that, I've learned of this new movie coming out, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, which feels like that is actually going to be an amalgamation of every role that he has ever played in his life. Uh, so, unrelated to this movie, I can't wait to watch that. But uh, until that time, you can watch Wild Your Heart, and you're going to get that uh, that Nicolas Cage experience where you have these moments of incredible, incredible acting, and then he just is completely unhinged for a scene or two or 12 or so in this entire movie. And, uh, man, just Nicolas Cage has, has a range, and it is literally anything. Yes. That's why Roger Ebert always called him the greatest living actor. <laughs> yeah, well, Ebert, as always, you are not wrong. Um, well, Roger Ebert hated the shit out of this movie. <laughs> He hated this movie. This was back when he still really disliked David Lynch's films. And his big issue with this one is the juxtaposition between comedy, which a lot of that is brought about by Nicolas Cage, um, and the extreme violence. Um, I've seen the Ebert and Siskel and Ebert clip where they talked about this movie, and the clip that they play while he's talking about that is the very opening where the dude it's playing this 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 metal soundtrack just and nicholas cage bashes this dude's head into the concrete floor like it's brutal and david lynch shows the violence and he shows like this dude's brain spilling out of the back of his head and then nicholas cage lights a cigarette and points up at diane ladd in this like weird elvis pose um it's not necessarily supposed to be funny but it comes across as slightly uh coy if not playful and that that's what roger ebert just hated about this movie um was is how it kept playing back and forth and it wasn't necessarily a juxtaposition uh but it comes back to a lot what we talked about in blue velvet how david lynch is obsessed with the natural dichotomies in life how th- life is violence and we bring humor to it um i think it works but yeah this was another one that Roger Ebert just hated. Too funny. Yeah, I think that's the thing where David Link is trying to make the scene funnier by juxtaposing those two things. Like by itself, it is this weird, funny moment where Nicolas Cage is murdering someone. That's the, that's also a strange thing to say. I think it's just gonna get stranger from here on out, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it's, a, uh, it's it's made funnier by by the fact that David Link is making it so extreme um and i think that's part of the the charm of david lynch like he's doing these weird strange things that don't seem to match up but they they work in his context yeah i i actually really that's something i take i took away from from blue velvet as well i really enjoy the juxtaposition the more i I see of it because it keeps it keeps his movies from just being your classical like oh this is this is you know as we learn in, in high school english class you know there's there the ancient greeks had tragedies and they had comedies and they didn't the lines weren't really blurred and he's like 
he does he doesn't as much blur the lines as much as he's like flipping a switch back and forth. Um, I mean, <laughs> just about everything, most everything I've seen of his, and I, I I like it because then it puts the whole package together, and you know you're not watching this gratuitous violent movie um, that is supposed to make you leave and feel wow everything's awful. Um, you're also getting these charming bits, these funny bits, these goofy bits, uh, just, just, I mean, just a lot of stuff that looks a little silly going on throughout. And it's just the, the balance, um, ba- basically going back and forth the whole time. Um, really, it's hard to pull off, um, because it could take you out of the film, but he keeps you like fully immersed in it by doing it. Um, where you can look at it and say, wow, the serious bits, I can, you know, violence is, is bad, and you know, but there's this violence that's always going on, and as a result, it's almost silly because it just exists. <laughs> like, like, what are you supposed to do about it? It just exists. And here's the silly bits. This guy's got a snakeskin jacket on. Hell, where's a snakeskin jacket? Hey man, don't talk shit about that snakeskin jacket. It represents his individuality <laughs> and belief in personal freedom. Look, we have Nag Stag. His name, I believe, isn't Nicholas Cage's character's name is Sailor Ripley, and it feels like that is exactly the kind of person who would wear a snakeskin jacket. Yes. It also feels like a character name that could only ever be played by Nicholas Cage. Like you cannot <laughs> not cast someone else as Sailor Ripley. <laughs> One of the things that's also really interesting about Wild at Heart in uh, the context of David Lynch's filmography, this is his most sexual film. Um, you could make this the very last movie that you watch from David Lynch, and you will be like, wow, there's a lot of fucking going on. Um, don't worry. There's this, this is basically the apex of there's a lot of fucking going on. Um, but it's not... It's not gratuitous, you know, it feels... So the film is so immersed in the passion between Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern's characters, and it doesn't feel like sex scenes for the sake of sex scenes. It's just this constant, like, their passion for each other is always boiling over. You And so, of course, there's going to be a lot of sex going on, and it doesn't feel gross watching it, uh, which is always important um, when watching a movie. You don't want to feel icky when you're watching a sex scene. Um, this is the only movie. Well, I shouldn't say that. David Lynch is the only director that Laura Dern has broken her no nudity co- uh, clause for. Um, there, there is some Laura Dern nudity in Twin Peaks: The Return. Um, so, if you're one of those weird obsessives about seeing every actress naked, like a, what's wrong with you? But b, here's where you see Laura Dern's boobs. Um, congratulations. But that goes to show how much trust she has in David Lynch, and that's what she says personally when she talks about Wild at Heart. Um, it's how much trust she had with David Lynch um, that she was willing to forego the nudity clause um, and and it sounds weird, but give him what he wanted out of the character. And even when they're not having sex, um, there's just this nonstop sexual tension. And you can see it in the way Laura Dern, like when it, there's, it happens like five or six times across the course of the movie where she yells out Nicholas Cage's name. You know, she just goes sailor, but the way she raises up her arm and like her body squirms, 
there's this anguish in there, but that anguish is bottled is mixed with this unmatched desire for uh, the the man that she loves, and it's really cool, and it creates this over overall tone of sexuality that is occurring even when there's no actual sex taking place, and it just it's a really interesting feel and vibe that I don't think I've seen in many, if any, other films uh, from any director. Yeah, I got bouncing. There was, I mean, obviously, the title Wild at Heart is, is immediately alludes to, like, young love and, and young runaways, you know, and fucking at every grimy motel they stop in every night. Um, like, it... it just there's just there's just the illusion of that and it's very much in the in the movie it's 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 put out there for you you see the sex scenes but i agree they never felt icky um they never felt like oh this is just you know a sex scene to, to show a sex scene to one to get boobs in the movie more like um yeah they are going to be here because that's what happens in a sex scene <laughs> um and um but yeah throughout throughout the whole movie there's there's that that undercurrent or very maybe obvious overcurrent of two young lovers. Um, just they are getting away from everything so that they can be together. Um, and it's, and it's honestly like that, that heavy lifting is, is definitely done by just the way Laura Dern acts and, and portrays her character throughout. Um, she's just madly in love with guy. Like there's nothing in else in the world that matters to her. Um, she meets him outside of prison twice, um, encompassing basically 10 years of her life, most of which he's locked up. Um, and she just waits for him. And, you know, that's, that's a plot point. But then you see the way she plays the character and it's so convincing. Like, yes, there's no one else in the world for her. This all makes perfect sense. I mean, I just, Laura Dern's a mate, but just absolutely incredible. So she is in everything, not just this, but she's incredible. Oh yeah, and um, another thing I caught on that this is definitely a David Lynch hallmark, but that uh, unsettling like shade of red he always uses. Yeah, there's upholstered chairs and some drapes in this movie that are like it, it looks like like a maroon that got set out in the sun too long. It's hard to describe, but it's like I see it and immediately like, yep, that's David Lynch's shade of red on right there. <laughs> If the, like if I ever go to go buy paint for the house and or something and I see that red see that shade of red I'll just be like why is this not called David Lynch? It'd be amazing if it was. Anything from you, Corey? Um, no, I don't. I don't think so. I I just like the movie. Um, I don't know if uh, David Lynch was flash forwarding to when Nicolas Cage was dating a Presley with all this Elvis Presley, but good job, David Lynch. If so. Well, Nicolas Cage has always been like him and Kurt Russell are the ultimate Elvis Presley fan slash impersonators in film. And yes, that is actually Nicolas Cage singing those two Elvis tunes in the movie. Zero percent surprised. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I studied the scene. I was like, this really sounds like his voice, like like his voice doing an Elvis voice, basically. Uh, I love the metal club scene because it's just like insane metal and then he just grabs mike and it's he just the band's just like cool let's do this elvis song. <laughs> <laughs> well i love like when he stops the music to to oh yeah to defend his to woman the... he just turns and like throws the devil horns at him and they just stop playing in the middle of their song the metal scene that's probably my favorite scene too um you know he throws out the snakeskin jacket quote uh he 
sings Elvis, the, the whole metal, just watching him and Laura Dern dance to the metal. It's so good. Like, that scene is so amazing. And it's a shame that that scene is, like, one of the first scenes in their in their road trip vignette. Was that, like, their first stop? Yeah. They, 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 they mentioned that, like, right when uh, she picks him up from prison at the beginning of the movie. She's like, Power Mad is playing at the... And I can't remember the name, but let's say it was Barfly. And then they both say simultaneously, Barfly! Because they're still kids. That that was like almost a point that I I got it too, like a theme. Um, Laura Dern's mom is holding, is her, da- her daughter is, uh, Lula is 18 when he goes to jail and 20 when she gets out, I think. 20 when he gets out. Yep. Um, but like, there's the illusion like, yes, it, yes, her mother is being like, overly aggressive to wanting to fuck sailor um but she's also like overly restrictive and protective of her daughter and like refusing to let go as her daughter enters adulthood um and some some thematic points in in also point to you know other villainous nature of of her mom but i thought that was interesting to see and then like they're acting like kids throughout this most of that trip they're like you know it's almost like hey let's go let's go to the metal club that we we like um and then you know just other stops they make. They go to New Orleans, make you know, they stop there. And it's all like very much like not people in their twenties, but almost teenagers um, at heart, just doing their fun adventures. Mm-hmm. But they're running away with people on their tail. Yeah, there's 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 even more hints of like that slight immaturity that comes through, like when Laura Dern is driving and. All the radio is nothing but um, news about how awful the world is and everybody dying and getting murdered and natural disasters and shit. And she just stops the car. She's like, Sailor, get me something on this fucking radio. Oh, yeah, she gets out. And then, oh, yeah, yeah, she gets out. Don't they dance on the side of the car after that? Yep. Yeah, just like kids just being wild. I thought the radio, that radio scene was funny. Like, it's all these horrible things, but the way it was presented, it's like, you know, she's just flipping through it, and it's like, three children died today. And it's like, okay, yeah, you know, that happens, you know, when you listen to the radio. But it just kept going and going, and then mm-hmm. it, like, built up to, to her just freaking out, stopping the car and freaking out about how bad all the news is. Yeah. Also, were all of those, like, discarded movie ideas, script ideas from David Lynch? <laughs> <laughs> the world may never know. He will never tell us, that's for sure. <laughs> Maybe, uh... When he dies, he'll have kept a secret notebook with all of his, all of his, uh, here's what my movies are about thing, and then someone will publish it and everyone will be disappointed. <laughs> no, it'll all be of the wrong interpretations of his last <laughs> trick on the world. <laughs> well, it's funny that you mentioned that. There is at least one person who may know the secret. Um, she's uh, an author. She wrote the book, uh, David Lynch Swerves, and it's all about his, uh, transition with the Twin Peaks movie and how his movies are um, become abstract and very strange as compared to everything before the Twin Peaks movie. Um, in the, the preface or the, the introduction or whatever, she's talking about how she met with David Lynch and learned so much about him that not once did he ever tell her his secrets, but she thinks that she figured it out. And so um, because she started writing the book, and David Lynch, after she like wrote her first draft, David Lynch read it and came back and said, can you cut these parts out, please? Thank you. And she was like, aha. 
or or that was just him just be pulling another swerve. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the world may never know. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I think that's uh, obviously one of the extremely fascinating things about David Lynch. It's that he makes these movies, and he, uh, uh, like a true artist, and unlike uh, what feels like literally every filmmaker nowadays, uh, he makes it to be interpreted, not to be understood. And I think that's something that is missing from uh, from a lot of media these days, or at least... Uh, the big, big media these days. Like, people want answers, they don't want spoilers, they, um, they want to feel, uh, satisfied and conclusionary at the end, and not that this movie or anything that David Lynch does doesn't do that. Um, well, I mean, Twin Peaks Season 1 did that, but there's also a Season 2, so the, like, that's the point of doing that. <laughs> but, um, he, he leaves enough open to interpretation that it makes it very interesting to talk about, but it also ends, uh, at least this movie, on the um, the the happiness of Sailor and Lula getting back together with their kid, and like that that is your conclusion, and everything else in between those points are uh, up for interpretation. And that's what makes it interesting. It's about the journey, not the ending. And I think David, that's something that David Link really understands. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think he is fortunate that he began filmmaking when he did and dove into abstraction. Um, I know we kind of brought this up a little with Blue Velvet um, and how like it was an indie, it was like an indie video store hit before um, indie video store hits really existed in the like really took off in the '90s. Um, and I think you know as a filmmaker he was able to progress into that abstraction based on his name value that he carried with a, with a loyal group of fans. Um, if he were trying to start do that in this day and age, I just don't think he'd have ever like gotten the money from any of the filmmaking sources to do it because everybody's so uncomfortable in letting stuff not be explained. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, they just they they don't want some guy who makes two hour YouTube videos slamming plot holes talking about their their <laughs> production and yeah. like. But you know, if you if someone tried that with David Lynch, like their career would their YouTube career would probably come to an end. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, he could do something like a Razor Hack nowadays. I, he could probably do something Wild Heart nowadays. This was only made for ten million dollars. Um, but I don't know if he's he would ever get Dune today. And that's okay, because he gave us Twin Peaks for the Return, which is like the epitome of what you were saying. When we get to it and you watch it, you'll really begin to understand. Like All the things that I've said about Twin Peaks for the Return over the past four years will finally start to make sense, because that only got made because of David Lynch's name. Like If it was any other director, there's no way they would have gotten away with what he gets away with in that, that series. It's it's a miracle, um, and it's 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 his most abstract, crazy thing, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I can't wait to watch that. Um, I mean, we have I can't wait to watch season two of Twin Peaks, Firewalk with Me, uh, just to see what uh, what those are all going to be about. Um, mm-hmm. I'm willing Which, to argue vehemently or acquiesce to the fact that Twin Peaks: The Return is or is not a movie. <laughs> doesn't matter it doesn't matter it's just the best thing that's ever been made that's the only thing that matters and we'll be we'll be going back to twin peaks next month right yep twin peaks season two 
Are, are we doing the whole of season two, or are we... No, we're only doing up to episode 16. Never mind. Uh, the schedule here says 1 through 9 next month, and then 10 through 22 the following month. Yeah. Which, uh... I don't know if there's a good breaking point in between there, but might have to split that up. Those are the good breaking points because so next month would be um, the conclusion of the Laura Palmer mystery, quote unquote. And then the rest of it is uh, the rest of it. I can't wait for David Lynch to just come on screen. It's like in his director's chair with his director's headphones or whatever on. He's like, I get it, you motherfuckers. Let's move on. (laughs) <laughs> it was me so anything else about wild at heart though before we uh, start wrapping this up i know that we've already started to trail away a little bit did dana watch wild at heart with you Corey? no would she have liked this in your estimation uh i think she might have liked this one um this one's a little weirder and straightforward um but i think there's enough in here that's not like the blue velvet levels of weird that would put her off yeah. I mean, especially not with, uh, I forget his, that character's name already, but that guy. Bobby Peru. Yeah. And fucking Willem Dafoe is a dynamo. Like, we haven't even really talked about him because it's, like, the end of the movie. But Willem Dafoe is amazing in this movie, and his teeth will haunt your nightmares <laughs> until the end of time. Um, like, all you have to do is, like, you, you don't even have to Google it. Just in Twitter, like, post a GIF. Just type in Bobby Peru. <laughs> <laughs> and that picture that will that will pop up you're just like holy jesus what the hell nightmare fuel um and 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 like the, the scenes like david lynch like almost like always makes the focal point his teeth like he's mm-hmm. just with angling the camera in such a way that your eyes are directed to his mouth moving when he's in the scene <laughs> very proud of that makeup job i guess very proud i would be too yeah i, I mean yeah I, yeah like we we didn't t- talk too much about willem dafoe it, another guy like this is like a, a holy trinity of acting and cage Dern and dafoe in this movie <laughs> um and yeah they, they're they're all excellent but um yeah as i said earlier like there's there's a large portion of the movie probably like 45 minutes of it where i just kind of was waiting for willem dafoe um it's the vignette stage which again if i went back and watched it again wouldn't feel as dramatic i know what to anticipate and i would probably enjoy it more um than feeling like it was a bit of a slog getting to that climactic event in big tuna well and i I think i think part of that also comes from the fact that the events that take place in big tuna are um are uh, hinted at so early on in the film like you're kind of waiting for that other shoe to drop Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah when marcellus santos puts out the hits and he drops the two silver coins we pretty quickly get to see the first silver coin what it means who it's going to and then we get to see um the outcome of that and but we keep waiting and waiting to figure out about that second silver coin and we don't until like the last five minutes. I don't. Yeah, I, I, I think. Yeah, I think it's just structurally it was a little, you know, a little sluggish. But yeah, um, it yeah. feels like you know in a year or two I'll watch it again and I'll go, oh yeah, much better this. You ended up buying the Blu-ray. That's how you watched it. Yep, I have the, the Shout Factory Collector's Edition. Nice. That's such a pretty cover that they made for it. it yeah, it's really nice. I, um, 
it, it looks nice too. Yeah, it just it overall just looks nice. Uh, Shell Factory d- d- puts together very good discs. They do. But yeah, no, th- this is this is definitely this is the movie. So all of David Lynch's films work better upon rewatch. That's just the nature of his films. The more you watch them, the more you understand, the more you appreciate, the more you can really dive in. But Wild at Heart is the one movie that really goes from, eh, yeah, it's good, to, oh my god, um, that and Twin Peaks Firewalk with me can, can, can start off that way. All of his other films are like, yeah, no, that was really good. And then they progress to, holy shit. Um, yeah, like I was going to say, Mulholland Drive blew me away the first time I saw it. Yeah, but the more you watch Mulholland Drive, the more you get into it. Like, his, his films still benefit, but yeah, Wild at Heart is kind of like, yeah, that was a good movie. Yeah, I imagine the next time I watch Mulholland Drive, because the more I understand and I'm confused by it, both of them are just going to go up. Yes. I uh, did look up uh, what other films were up for the Palme d'Or that year at Cannes. Um, I recognize none of them, of course, but one of the films out of competition, Dreams by Akira Kurosawa. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wild that, that this movie won the Palme d'Or. I, I'm always, like, I, I it's a very, that film festival, I mean, that and Venice are both very weird, and it's this isn't like a rant about them, but it's such a, like, a weird what are the tastes of the the people voting that year? Like, there's there's multiple instances where like a clearly better film didn't win, um, and then there's other years where like all these movies that came out that year weren't even at the film festival, um, which you know, it's what it is. You have to enter your film, so um, that doesn't matter. But it's just like a very weird voting. Like, and it feels very you know closed door <laughs> almost. Like, hey, uh, we decided this one's the best film. Don't ask us how we reached this decision. <laughs> don't ask, don't tell. Yeah, don't ask. Yeah, it's, yeah. But, yeah, I always I always also appreciate you'll hear, like, you, you know, this film gets, like, a 12-minute standing ovation. I'm like, get, get over yourself, people. <laughs> wow. How long do people need a stand to yeah. ovation a movie? Nobody hey, wants to be the jerk who sits down first, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Word on the street was Twin Peaks The Return got a 20-minute standing ovation. 20 minutes. Like, you could watch half an episode of Twin Peaks in that time. <laughs> yeah, I'd have been upset they weren't showing the following episode. <laughs> You'll see. That, fir- that first two-hour block of, of The Return is pretty good, though. Just generally, I'm not a fan of clapping after movies in theaters. Uh, like, if you're at a film festival, it seems like it'd be more appropriate because the, the director might be there or someone who worked on the film might be there. But, like... If I'm just going to Century City Mall, I'm not gonna clap. No, <laughs> but people do. I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't usually clap. I sometimes like yelp during a movie when something cool, exciting happens. But yeah, yeah, I don't need to clap during the credits. No, my hands are all greasy and sticky from soda and popcorn anyway. <laughs> <laughs> true. True. All right. So let's let's go ahead and wrap this guy up. Is there anything is there anything we disliked about the film? I don't think we really talked about that, but I feel like we're ready to wrap this up. Yeah, I mean, again, besides like feeling a bit like a slog, I didn't have anything that jumped out like, oh, this particular character, or this particular scene is bad, and I don't like it. You know, I was gonna say maybe like the sexual violence at like there's only like two instances of it. Maybe it was a, felt a little like you know in your face but i think you know that's the point like it's not supposed to make you feel comfortable when that gets put in a plot so um but that was the only time i in the movie i I maybe winced you could say 
Yeah, I, I agree. That it feels a little, um, or it can feel a little long in the middle, but I don't think it will feel as long on a rewatch. Um, but it, it is just David Lynch being extremely deliberate with the way that he is uh, structuring the journey. Um, and yeah, I think that particularly that scene when um, Bobby Peru is asking uh, Lula for sex, that was a little weird and strange. Uh, that is like part of the, the creepiness and weirdness of Peru's character, but I think that can be, uh, especially nowadays, that can be done a different way that is not traumatizing Lula further. Yeah, Bobby Peru is just, he's just a quicky, icky dude, but... Does he prefer Heineken or Paps? Uh, he is a Paps man, <laughs> <laughs> but he won't. He, but he won't. He won't uh, threaten to kill you for drinking a Heineken, though. He's not. He's not Frank Booth level. <laughs> All right. So, shall we end this segment and uh, take a break? Yeah. Yeah. Right, so. Join us. Uh, join us next time for the first half of season two of Twin Peaks. Uh, like Corey mentioned earlier, I don't know if he edited it out or not. We're watching episodes one through nine, concluding the Laura Palmer mystery. It'll be good. Yeah. We get we get three David Lynch directed episodes, I believe. Uh, is he? Uh, now we're getting off topic again. But is he uh, a big director presence on on Twin Peaks? I haven't actually. Got... No, actually, he he is not. He only directed six of the thirty episodes. All right. Um, but he does he do every. Uh, every episode of the return he does do every episode yeah. of the return written and directed by david lynch written co-written by mark frost all right well looking forward to that uh until then where can we find you on the internet chris you can find me on the twitters at gokufi you can also find me on letterbox at gokufi i remembered this time <laughs> uh all right let's take a short break and chris and i will be back with ink and kenny to talk about farewell Maggie kramer We're back. Chris is still with me, but Kenny and Ink have joined us. Hi. Hello. Uh, don't sound too excited, Kenny. So we're here to talk about your favorite sport. I don't know. It's your favorite sport. <laughs> I'm going to assume that. Uh, farewell to my dear Kramer, the soccer anime uh, recently ended, 13 episodes, um, about the Wadabees soccer club um, centered around Nozomi Onda who uh, used to play for the boys' team in middle school, was, was never really allowed to play um, during official games. There is an entire prequel movie about it called, uh, I don't know, it's not immediately listed on Wikipedia. First Touch. First mm-hmm. Touch? That sounds familiar. Um, but it is, uh, it is her and a um, bunch of other characters trying to build up this soccer team, bringing it back to uh, somewhat former glory. There is a new coach, uh, Naoko Nomi, who is a former Nageshko Japan player, World Cup champion, um, who returned to her alma mater to build up this team. Uh, but what did you all think of this television anime? Let's start with Kenny. Um, 
Well, I was kind of interested in this uh, to to read to watch anime and also the the manga because um, Arakawa the uh, the mangaka was like he made um, Your Lie in April, which was like one of my uh, one of my more favorite uh, manga and anime. And um, to be honest, like um, I thought the anime was was okay. I think the I think the movie is actually quite a lot better. Um, there's there's a there's a certain amount of like there's certain things I liked about the anime, but then there's a lot of problems also in terms of just the uh, the pacing of the story and kind of the limitations of the uh, animation. Like uh, you can tell that it, the budget was not super super high, right? <laughs> Which kind of you know it, it leads to problems like uh, the the quality of describing the games and animating and things like that, like. Uh, there's certain issues, but I mean, overall, it was an it was an interesting watch, and uh, I suppose we'll talk about it later. But I, I definitely liked the movie a lot better. Um, uh, Ink, yay, girls' sports team. Uh, you know, something that's not usually showcased in anime. So enjoyed the hell out of that. Loved uh, loved the uh, like that. I just saw Kaori in every face on the team because you know same manga <laughs> and uh, the designs are kind of very similar to that but you also can see you their whole face all the time too that too <laughs> all the time no matter what <laughs> we'll talk about that um but the uh I, I love kind of the standout characters the like uh ada the fish girl um and the the like the 1920s lollipop girl and uh the the ojo-sama girl um, all those were just a lot of fun. I thought it was, in, in, in essence, this was this is just a lot of fun, and it's just a good personal uh, growth story. But it's also got you know you know fighting the sexist institution that is uh, soccer in Japan, uh, or at least high school soccer in Japan uh, for these for these girls at that school. And uh, it was it was, it was a lot, tons of fun to watch. It's the games aren't intense. Which uh, which is kind of sad, but uh, the personal drama is like super up there, and that's really what what you cling to when you're watching this. Yeah, I would say its biggest strength was was the characters. They are presented as people that you really get attached to and want to, you know, especially you want to root for the Warabies. Um, they're 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 like you know they're they're sort of a team of misfits, but they're not really you know the the true team of misfits. These are people who are good at soccer. Um, and kind of drawn together in this one school with, you know, one real purpose. Um, and it's kind of how the, the show closes. It's like, this is almost, it's a very weird show because like we are essentially just watching this team come together as a team, um, and all the struggles that they go through, or maybe just a couple of the struggles that they go through on their way to becoming a good team and a cohesive team. Um, it was a real bummer just watching the soccer matches. They just, just, it was, it just, they just did not look good. It was, you know, people standing in place. Oh, the ball is passed to me. Let me pass it to someone else. But it's done in such a way that it's very obvious. They're not going to animate any of the actual like action of a, of a soccer match. Um, very, very disappointing there. Um, but you know, I was attached enough to the characters you know the, the manga i think it's available it's co- published by kodansha so it's yeah. available digitally um digitally I, I think i mean i i think i'm going to be checking it out um i've got definitely always got a big appetite for soccer especially during the summer after a major international tournament 
So um, I definitely have a big appetite to, to kind of read this. Um, they just it's just number one. We just don't get a lot of stories about girls teams um, in any sport. But for a girls soccer team, given that Japan has won the women's World Cup. Um, and has kind of backslid in terms of the the overall quality of the national team since it's like very timely almost <laughs> to see this show about I need to we need to make sure we save women's soccer in Japan um, and it's uh, it's almost like par- running in in a sense parallel with um, the environment the, the the current status and that this may not be something that lasts it could just be you know turning over the generations of a team that sometimes happens but. Um, I thought that was, you know, almost timely when um, I saw that scene in the in the show. Um, but yeah, it's disappointing overall. It, it just feels like a disappointing adaptation. I'd probably be upset if I had read the manga in advance and then got this as my <laughs> anime adaptation. Yeah, and I think that's something that we can forgive a little more with manga, uh, given that it only has so many panels to uh, show you what's going on in the action. So we kind of do. Uh, expect the uh, we we see this kick and then we see the receive but we don't really see the thing in between that in a manga that would be kind of weird but in anime we we do expect that kind of action but what uh, what does I agree with all of you the the characters really push this uh, anime above kind of middling sports anime into um, I, I at least enjoy. It. Watching it and learning about these characters, uh, Onga is the the midfielder who uh, tries to play her hardest because she didn't, didn't get that chance in middle school. Uh, Suo is, uh, I think, like a wing player who uh, is really fast and can get behind defense and just kind of surprise them. Uh, Soshizaki is uh, the number three defensive midfielder in the nation, according to Wikipedia and probably the television show where they got that from. Um, and they all kind of end up on this team run by a, uh, or coached by a former Nageshko Japan player, uh, trying to bring back the relevancy of women's soccer, but they are on a middling team, which makes it harder for these incredibly talented players to be noticed at all, which is pointed out by, like, the prefectural number one team for the last 50 years or whatever. I did want to say, uh, with regards to the animation, and specifically the in-match animation, the um, the only real spotlight, and it's it's you can tell like your lie in April where they use the 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 quote-unquote budget for the musical sequences where they really wanted to up the drama, so they poured every ounce of detail and they they hired every animator they could to, for the those scenes um and likewise they really pulled together for onda's uh ball handling because when it comes down to her manipulating the ball uh they pay very close attention to her footwork but unfortunately that's not the game so <laughs> it's part of the game i think what they're doing with um the, the manager as well, the one that is also a teacher. Um, I don't know. Goro. What? Goro. Goro. Is that his name? Pandas. Yep. Yeah, Pandas. Yep. <laughs> oh, there he is. Yeah, um, him like having an injury and now turning to coaching. I think it's very interesting seeing how um, he's kind of apathetic to it because it's, they're not a very good team, but he kind of sees these, this promise in these players, knows how to coach them but isn't really willing to do that until like halfway through the series when he's spurred on by a, a former player um 
Yeah, so I I do like the the characters and the, the motivations they have going along with this. Like it brings forward the story, which doesn't I think only features one official game, and they lose it. Uh, and besides the, the like three on three futsal, they lost every game besides that too. So um, this is like season one, hopefully of this series because this is the first step in the typical sports anime that we get. They they stumble along the way and then we learn what they make of themselves. Isn't Goro more motivated by the or demotivated rather by the fact that he like had these really intense co- coaching uh, schemes and uh, not schemes tricks tactics. That's the word I'm looking for. He had these excellent tactics all worked up, and then in the end, his players were just like, nah, those are too complicated. Fuck off. <laughs> and, uh, he's like, okay, so it's worthless being a coach. And that's pretty much what put him in that uh, that funk that he lives in. Yeah, a lot of the players from the, the previous year's team had just left the team also, so I imagine that is rather disheartening. Uh, I mean, I have to disagree a little bit on the like strong characters. I mean, I felt like What's disappointing to me was, like, I haven't read that far into the manga, but, like, in the anime, a lot of the characters are very one-note, right? Um, I mean, I wanted to feel more attachment to the players and, and the team as a whole, but literally, like, to me, the um, uh, the, the main the main character and the coach, Goro, you're just talking about, like, those were the only two characters where I really felt like the backstory was sort of fleshed out in any way where I really had the sense of attachment to them, which was sort of weird to me because, like, I assume we're going to talk about it later, but... The movie is the same studio, same director, but it, I felt like the, the characters like felt they, they popped a lot more to me, like it, like there were much more people I could sort of relate to. Whereas the those same characters are in the anime, and they're they're very uh, to me not like cardboard cutouts, but they're they're not they don't have the depth that I would like from like a like a sports anime. Maybe like that's caricatures. A little bit like um, I mean like the one the one girl who's like the forward is like she just has a the Ojo Sama laugh and that that's about it, right? Like Yeah. Like I would like to see a little you know what I mean? Like uh I mean some of the opposing teams they had they they went into a little bit. It was kind of interesting, but and I mean that's also the fault of the um the kind of budgetary constraints of the anime probably too, where it's harder you know, the the the, the feel of the games is sort of stilted by the limitations of the of the um the animations and things like that. So you don't really get that sort of I don't what, what would I say exactly like you know the kind of tension you'd want whereas yeah in the movie I feel like you feel it a lot more because the the flow of the game is a lot smoother and much more of it is actually animated mm. so there's I feel like there's a lot more build up that that was sort of lacking the whole I feel like the whole uh pacing of the anime was also very like uh, I don't know what to call it odd but it would get you start getting it get started getting more intense and then they would throw in a lot of like slapstick comedy which would kind of kill the intensity and to me that was also kind of a negative but that's also personal taste also I assume guys about to say, I was I was not there for the uh, the tension I was there for the uh, the slapstick comedy and the uh, <laughs> the drama <laughs> uh, yeah I, I mean, thought I think that I thought it was a little disjointed and I think that comes a lot with manga adaptations where they're literally just going panel to panel and animating them with very little and i get the feeling that may have been what happened anytime i see that like super abrupt shift and i know it's a manga adaptation i just kind of cynically think like uh they just didn't bother you know filling in the gap in between these two panels and just went to the next one i agree with what you're saying like but like the movie was a 
adaptation of his earlier manga, right, which actually predated uh, Your Line April. And, like, somehow I felt like they were able to do a little better job of, like, uh, having the slapstick comedy, but, like, at more kind of appropriate moments, right, where it's not kind of deflating the tension. I think they really did have to adapt that prequel movie a lot more, or at least that's how I felt, because I have have actually read Sayonara Football, and I didn't like it that much, Um, but I did like the movie. Like, maybe that is the attachment that I... Uh, somewhat cultivated with Onga through the series, uh, whereas I didn't have that prior to reading the manga. Um, and also maybe I would feel differently about the manga now that I have uh, watched this anime, but um, at least for the movie, I felt it was uh, like they knew that you can't one-to-one uh, two volumes of a manga to a movie, but they felt that they could more one-to-one a couple volumes of manga to an anime series. I mean, that only raises a question to me, like, that there's not that much progression, like, um, story-wise in the entire anime, right? Like, I only raise a question, like, it might have been better to make the entire um, adaptation of the manga into, like, a movie, only because, like, you have the, the ability to tell the events in a more, like, dynamic way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, like, I I guess I'm on uh, the side with Ink on the slapstick comedy part, too, just because I didn't feel, <laughs> and this was a limitation of the way that they adapted this, I didn't really feel tension in the games. No, uh, but that's a, no. Big, that's a big issue to you. Like. Yeah. Yeah. I, they, they were not tense matches at all. Yeah. And like, I, nothing about it was ripping yeah i mean one of them was like a 21 to 0 route or something <laughs> and like the real tension is onga almost scores a goal once or twice um but for the for the other one like i actually had trouble following the uh the action on on the pitch for for the games because um like soccer much more than and volleyball or uh, basketball or a lot of other sports anime and manga that I have watched and read needs to have much more uh, movement and action and like you can't really switch camera angles from uh, one one pass to from the pass er to the pass e I don't know how to say that but um, it's it's kind of disjointed and weird to watch it like that um, it, it is yeah and I think it's that's that's where the I'm saying the you compare visuals from this and, like, uh, Your Lie in April, it's, like, the same, you know, it's the same mangaka. It's, like, the character designs are pretty similar, but it's, like, you can tell, like, you know, studio constraints, budget constraints, like, they end up playing kind of a... You don't you don't really want to see it, but you can kind of see it when you're watching the anime, right? Like, if this was... If this was a higher-budget anime, I think the games would have to be a lot more impactful. Because you get the games, you get, like, it's some action, and then you get characters standing around and talking and it's kind of stilted to me and it's like like you were saying i have a hard time following exactly what is um happening all the time in the games like because like i said the pacing to me is kind of is kind of odd also like uh certain game situations to me seem to take a long time and other ones were sort of shorter and you don't really have a feel of the sort of tension yeah it's weird it almost and i know this isn't the case but it's almost like the people making it had never seen a soccer match before <laughs> yeah that's a good that is a good point because it, it just feels like they were like okay they it's like they were treating soccer like it was a adapting a soccer match like it was a baseball game like okay the mm. pitcher's at the mound let's just focus in on the pitcher doing their thing but there's like 
a lot of fluid action and movement that obviously isn't being shown. And then there's no kind of scaling for the time that things take or where we are in the match. Um, you know, if 70 minutes go by, nothing happens. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, like, when I'm watching Ace of Diamond, I can get a sense of the action and what's going on. And, like, half of that anime is just still frames. But because it's baseball, it just makes sense or makes more sense in my head to watch that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you really, you know, you you can tell that the you can tell that the uh, Arakawa has a good good grasp of, of of football knowledge and and you know tactics and things like that. But then, like, um, because the it's a good point. Like the creators don't seem to really understand the sport as much because it, it and the limitations of the animation it veers into almost like sometimes it's realistic and sometimes it's almost like a somewhat fantasy where like one player could take over the entire game or whatever and then it becomes like unrealistic so you're, you're to me like you're constantly shifting between and it's like it's kind of distracting and like i didn't really have high expectation that much going into the movie but the movie is actually to me was much more like because the animation is better it's weird because the creators are the same like the studio is the same the director is the same but you have a higher budget obviously so the the game shown was like animated much better and you have actual sense of like scale and what's going on and timing and things like that and so the drama and, and you didn't have like uh, to me, that's where like the slapstick, slapstick, like the middle of a match, were kind of distracting because it sort of like cuts into the tension. And like you had that in the movie, but they were like at more appropriate times, not in, like a really tense situation or something. So, uh, I mean, I feel like I feel bad. I feel like I'm just trashing the show. I actually enjoyed it quite a lot, but there are like certain limitations, right? That kind of took me out of it. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, the balance is. Uh, the balance is kind of problematic because you have two stories here and you know you usually have the the typical sports anime thing is kids finding themselves while they play the game and i don't think these 13 episodes really um manage to balance that well because what you end up doing is 13 episodes of girls finding themselves or starting to find themselves within this team and you don't really have them finding it through the game because you get a lot of focus on individual characters, you know, acclimating to a team or their role in a team rather than with the other characters. So there's a lot of personal drama, a lot of personal conflicts that are starting to form, but that isn't taking place through the game. So you don't really have a good vehicle for all these relationships. And if the, the animation, the game and the games themselves aren't portrayed with any sort of um, consequence or, or tension, then it, it's, it's very problematic in developing these tensions between the characters too. So um, like Corey said, like if this is hopefully this is just season one and season two could be a real banger especially with the uh, the emotional impact that the movie has. Um, and it shows, you know, it can, you know, be animated well and have tension in the games. Um, but if there's a second season follow-up that kind of ties this all together, that's when everything might click, finally. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I used this comp earlier in a those No White Notes podcast, but... Um, for something like Haikyuu, we see them um, win some games before we see them, uh, spoilers, ultimately lose at the end of the first season. Uh, and I think we don't really, I don't think, uh, we didn't really get the uh, moment where they have this uh, feeling of achievement. And I know they are a new team and like maybe it would 
uh, feel kind of cheap if they won immediately, but um, like losing 2-0 and kind of getting a pat on the back, being like, good job, you only lost 2-0 instead of 21-0 last time, uh, or this time, uh, that, that doesn't feel as satisfying as a ending to the show. Like, uh, I, I mean, I was looking at like the details of the show. Like, um, Linden Films animated both the anime and the movie, and like, it, I mean, they they do like okay work, right? But it's they're not like a what I would consider like a top notch studio, right? It's probably like so, like you know budgetary wise and things like that. Like that's where it sort of holds the show back too. Like I was saying earlier, the uh, yeah, you know, because yeah. if you had a higher budget, kind of. They're like they're kind of in a you know what I would consider like kind of yo right but not a not like a you know top end animation. Yeah. They're also aren't they also doing Tokyo Revengers like at the same time, which is I probably so. taking yeah. up a lot of their. I think so. Power. Yeah. yeah. So, like, and Tokyo Revengers that doesn't require this much movement, but also uh, as a result looks better to me. Like I'm not confused about what's going on in Tokyo Revengers. <laughs> I was I was interested looking in the bio of the director of the series. Uh. uh Seiki uh, Takuno, like he has a quite interesting. He, he does mo- a lot of like Linden film shows, but he also did a lot of other things. Like he did a lot of. Uh, he's done some Gundam stuff. He did a bunch of episodes of like uh, Gundam Double O, like a, the second season, and like he actually did a, a few episodes of like uh, the first season of Love Live. So I thought that was that was kind of interesting. He did the famous episode where uh, they have the performance in the gym and no one shows up. <laughs> It's very poignant. So, like, he's a he's an interesting director, but uh, like, I mean, so, the problem too, like, some of those matches, the animation is almost um, like almost the Netflix kind of motion comics level, which which does hinder like you know the the immersion in the matches, right? Yeah, yeah. And Inc. We actually watched uh, a different series by Lighting Films, um, Hanibago, but I didn't really feel the same way in that, and that is also a sports anime that requires a lot of movement. They're playing badminton, but I guess badminton can translate more to um, still frames. I, I felt like watching the movie, they, they use a lot of like, 3D animation, right? And um, kind of like, you know, 3D animation where it's like further away too, so you the entire the entire pitch, so you see the, all the players and things like that, so you have a better feel of what exactly is going on. That would have helped like the anime a lot, but I mean, I'm sure the film had a higher budget. For those sort of things. Sure. Also, sorry, I was away from the mic for a couple seconds. I did want to say, uh, Hanabato is fantastically animated. Like, there's there's so many good tense shots, and it's all uh, relative motion and uh, extensions and whatnot. But it is superbly animated. And yeah, you you get both the tension in the match and all the detail of you know the muscles, the twisting, the sounds. It's it's all there. So yeah. for them to go from that to this is kind of incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like the the movie was was pretty well animated. I think though, like you know, Definitely. I mean, you're not gonna have the same budget for an anime, but if if it was if the anime had that sort of a more similar level of detail, like it would be more enjoyable. Let's hope they're not working on Tokyo Revengers 2 at the same time they do the sequel series to this. <laughs> <laughs> or sequel season. Tokyo Revengers is at least too core, so it's just still going. Um, like, I mean, despite all of the complaints that we had, I did, I did legitimately enjoy the show. Um, I liked because of the the kind of lack, and, lack of tension in the games, but also outside of the games, I did like the kind of slapstick nature of the of the comedy. Uh, Shigatori was just a funny character overall. 
to me, um, who is uh, never not really overplayed um, and doesn't overstay her welcome. Like if there was more of her, I don't I don't know if I would like her as much. Yeah, having her punctuate the matches was just kind of perfect because you can only take that over the top so much. Whereas Adatara being a magical girl is fucking fantastic. When I saw that, I just, I lost it. Because you have this one girl who has just this zombie-like expression. She is, like, deadpan, monstrous throughout. And uh, she just sort of pops in, literally, frame at odd angles. And is just the weirdest thing in the series. And I loved her to death the first time I saw her. But uh, when her backstory comes and she just always wanted to be a magical girl, I was like, okay, this this owns. (laughs) Yeah, on that same team, there was the really tall girl, too, that, like, played... What other sport did she play? Something where she she's more stationary, and she's just like, I just want to run around. Let me run around. Um, yeah, it's Adatara. Oh, it's the same one. Okay. I thought yeah. that... Uh, who was the one girl with the curls on that team? Wasn't I? Uh, you? You, Tenma? Okay. I thought that was the magical girl. Girl. She looks more like the magical girl, which makes Adatara a little more funny. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, we get more backstory on her, and then we get on Suo, who is a main character and, and like, the he, the secondary striker. And that's a little bit of the problem with me, too. Like, you introduce a lot of characters, and how much attention is paid to them, is it varies a lot, right? So it's it's not really a bad thing, right? But I think it, it's, it's kind of scattershot to me, like... Um, you know, where, where like the movie, you pay attention to just the, a very small amount of characters. I feel like I, I felt like a much uh, stronger connection to the character in that sort of setting. I mean, because I really wanted to, I really wanted to like like the team, um, you know, all the protagonists. But I feel like you know, you only have a few characters who are very uh, kind of colored out, filled out. I would say, like you know, we, you have a good sense of who they are and what their their goals are and things like that. Like it's 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 a little bit like all over the place for me. Definitely agree. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, I don't know. I, I had this conversation with a friend the other day um, about how a lot of you know we just we we get an absolute shitload of anime now. Um, so you know it's a lot more quantity, but you know this could this this could have been given I guess a little more attention to detail. Mm-hmm. Um, you know things. <laughs> Honestly, things spread out a little more and more focus on, you know, the matches themselves, um, telling the story through the conflicts of the matches, uh, you know, just just some tweaks. And, you know, it would have required more episodes, which is obviously why they did it this way, because they just weren't going to be able to do that. But in a perfect world, you know, it would get a little more time to let everything grow, let the big cast of characters shine and expand on the manga as opposed to what appears to be, you know just a straightforward manga adaptation with as minimal hard work as possible in making the show at times mm-hmm. just but i did enjoy it like i i enjoyed it i mean i was very happy for a, a girl soccer anime um and i wish there were more that could be just don't we just don't get a lot about girls teams at all and when and especially with a mainstream sport yeah it is. It is interesting. It's good that it, it. This came out in the. Uh, this is the 10th anniversary of Japan winning the Women's World Cup, which was. I want to say it's one of the bigger kind of major sporting like Cinderella stories of the last so many years, right? Like, um, at least to me, like them beating the United States 
you know, the United States women's team is obviously like a huge powerhouse, and, and Japan had a lot of good players at the time, but, I mean, there was a few players who weren't even, like, full professionals, right? They were just, like, a they were still, like, part-time kind of players, and for them to win the actual World Cup was, like, a huge deal, so... And, no, and that's, it was, like, uh, it was yeah. huge, yeah. It, right, it, and, like... Japan kind of came out of nowhere in that tournament. Yeah, so that's, like, uh, even the, uh, the, the, the character, the, uh, Naoko Nomi, who's, like, came back to coach the team, like, I would have, I mean... I mean, I thought her character was funny and it was interesting, but I mean, there's a there was a good opportunity if it was more like fleshed out, right, and then added in those sort of aspects, right? Because, uh, you know, like you know why she wanted to coach, come back, and you know what the future generation is important, things like that. Like it, it's sort of talked about in this show, but it could have been. It, to me, it's like a little bit of a opportunity, right? Like you had all these avenues, you can add depth to the characters, and the only one, the only one they really did that much to me was like the Goro, the. Uh, I guess the actual head coach, right, or the actual manager, where he's sort of like a weird, nonchalant guy and, until they explain his backstory, and then you know he's you know if they had that with more characters, like I would I would have felt like a deeper connection if that makes sense. Mm. And it's also a shame because uh, Naoko is supposed to be like the heroine here because she's you know bringing her experience to the younger generation to help them excel and help bring back the sport and enable them. Uh, and, or foster them, and uh, like there's there's one point during one of the matches, and I screamed at the show for doing it. Um, <laughs> I think it was that twenty one twenty one nothing or twenty one yeah twenty one nothing sh- uh, mm-hmm. game. Uh, but their their center was dominating the field, and like everyone was clueless. Like, oh no, what can we do? And what's Goro's big suggestion that everyone's like, oh my god, you're brilliant. And he's like, take out the center. It's like, well, duh. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you so special for putting this forward? <laughs> like the, the 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 female coach should have had much a better head on her shoulders, and she, they fall. The story writing falls back to saying, "Oh, well, I don't know much about offense or defense, defense. or for one of the two. Which, yeah, uh, like, and it's like, come on, really? Yeah. Uh, that also creates a problem where it's like, you know. Um, it's a lot of, you know, it's partially like the, the limitations of the animation too, but like, you have certain areas where the depiction is like hyper-realistic, and then you have, and then you have other things like you just mentioned where it becomes kind of cartoonish, like just, just such a simple whatever, right? And it's like, that, like, that, that comes up like a multiple times, and it, that was kind of like a, a point of annoyance for me at least, right? Like, you need to stick to kind of a, it's, it's, the show is very realistic and like, tactics base and they're also they're always bringing up like real world examples of tactics and players and managers and then and then you'd flip it and then it would be like you know just some uh, one person is sort of like magical and they could change the match or whatever and it's like so it's <laughs> like to me that like you know i need to i need a sort of sense of like what is the sense of the scale of realism you're going for right because there's certain sports anime that are like super realistic and there's some that are just like not realistic at all where people can just do you know ridiculous <laughs> like things so it's like but you need to set kind of like the what reality you're in, right? To me, that's like an important thing. Not only that, but if you're going to be bringing in those realistic world, real world examples, like you mentioned, like mm-hmm. to have that either succeed or fail, you're going to have to show the follow through on how that succeeded or failed, and it never did. It's just sort of did the quick cut to something, and then it's like, oh no, that didn't work. Right. <laughs> it's like, well, I guess I know why. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they actually mention that like the Urawa Hose school is using, I think a five-two-three, where it's five back when they're defending, but five up when they're attacking, and you need the 
midfielders or whoever the, the two that are moving back and forth to be able to both attack and defend and also have the speed and stamina to run the entire length of the field at all times. But it we is, don't really uh, get an impression of that beyond the one character. It is what uh what England tried to do in the uh, Euros finals. That was their that <laughs> was their <laughs> tactic. Yeah. So um, they actually switched to that right for the final and to some uh, varying degrees of success or or not success. <laughs> so yeah, like that's where it's annoying because you get you get really hyper realistic uh, depictions like that, and then the next thing it's like. You know, someone shoots and it's like off the crossbar, but the the ball would still be in the field. But then everyone stops to like sit around and talk for like two minutes, and you're like, that's <laughs> that's not realistic, right? Like that that's where like that that kind of stuff. I mean, it's probably a pet peeve of mine, but that sort of drives me crazy, right? Where it's like, you know, is it is it based on actual like football tactics, or is it kind of you know like a fantasy where someone could you know have like a magical kick that you know no one could save or something it's like it, you're kind of you're kind of splitting in between that and that that sort of bothered me a little bit and that's why i was surprised too like the movie actually fixed a lot of those issues where it stuck much more to like a realistic tone <clears throat> yeah it was i would say that i w- it was always a little jarring because you can tell that the, the um writer of the manga definitely knows like ins and outs of strategy and tac- tactics and, and the history of the sport and like they would throw in the, those dialogue lines and kind of the background into things into the anime, but and I don't know if it's the same in the manga because I haven't read it, or if it was more embellished in the anime. Just like those weird, unreal, like lack of those elements that are just totally unrealistic, like her carrying the ball down the field. Like I get it, she's good with her feet. That's the silliest way to show it. Like she could do it. Like you do that two or three times, and then you make a play. But you're not getting all the way down a field. Like even in, even in like high school, like, some uh, like someone's some, gonna be good enough. Some <laughs> FIFA away. FIFA arcade mode. Like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like uh, I mean, I, I appreciate. Uh, I've never read enough of manga. I mean, I assume it's from the manga, but. Uh, uh, Arakawa puts in a lot of like, I mean, he he almost does it too much, right? Where it's like constant like name dropping of of famous players or tactics. Um, yeah. And the the one girl with the goggles is based on uh, uh, Edgar Davids, who was like a um uh he, he's like he was like a Dutch uh he was very famous because he was like a he was a famous Dutch uh, footballer and then he always wore goggles. That was like his trademark thing and like uh, he used to play for like. Uh, I think it was Tottenham and a few other teams, but like, um, it, it was like it was kind of interesting, but it's also, it, I mean, I guess if you ha- if you know about it, it's also a little, it, it almost takes away because it's a little bit annoying where it's like overly like overly referential to things. Yeah, yeah, like, that's what I, a that's big what flex I on how much I know about soccer. Yeah. yeah, to where it doesn't really add anything to the actual like story, right? It's just kind of like, uh, yeah, that's that's what I would say. <laughs> like, the, I, I thought it was kind of corny that they just eventually were like, hey, our uniforms are just England's. Like, okay. <laughs> like, you and a lot of other people have based your sports uniforms off of England's, because England's is like the original uniform. <laughs> but the all-white look with the crest, the crest was like, I mean, the crest was, an, I guess, kind of cute, but it was just so like, I don't need you to, to explain this long dialogue about, oh, our uniforms are you know, representative of England. They are based off of England. Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you feel that way. Cause I, I got that feeling a little bit too, where it's like, I, I get it. Like you watch a lot of, uh, you, you, you know a lot about like international soccer or whatever. <laughs> it's, 
it's the the old the old adage that like if you're a big fan of something you should never like just write about it or so i don't it's like <laughs> like like the the, the, the uh, fallacy of studio gynax like these guys were such big anime fans they wanted to cram every reference into their anime about other anime <laughs> and then suddenly they reached the end and they were like oh crap we just have to have everybody in chairs congratulating shinji we're out of time <laughs> yeah, i guess maybe yeah, that not- hurts us as well being uh i mean i don't know it uh as much as you uh Kenny and Chris do, it seems, but um, us knowing the sport, it makes it harder for us to enjoy a fictionalized version of the sport, especially one that is not as animated as this one. But even coming from me, who, like, I don't watch soccer or football uh, at all, um, I've learned how to enjoy the game. I used to play it when I was, like, a little kid, but um, I just watched a few games with the neighbor of mine once, and I was like, he taught me how to watch it, and I started to enjoy it for, for... the the skills involved but um never went back and never really cared to but uh like you guys were saying then the constant name drops like they mean absolutely nothing to me (laughs) and it's it's not adding to my enjoyment either it's like yeah i could stop watching this to look up this character but i know they're just generally referencing some dude who's good at the sport so um it, it wasn't a huge drawback but they did do it way too much because it was like every single character is like this world famous thing and i was like mm-hmm. they're they're high school girls like <laughs> <laughs> high school girls that uh, model their play after mario balotelli yeah <laughs> i guess that they're 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 football talkers but come on <laughs> oh yeah isn't um isn't uh what's the the, the laughing girl she's based off apparently she's supposed to be based off of mario balotelli yeah that's like i did not get that at all that she is latin like a hundred percent oh god i can totally see that <sighs> all right um have we exhausted everything here shall we move on to a couple questions that we have well i, yeah. I mean if you, I, if you had a second i mean I, I would i feel bad because i mean i actually enjoyed the anime but I actually enjoyed the movie a lot more. So if you had a, a few seconds to talk just about the movie itself, right? I wanted to get what, what no, go, your go opinion off. of it was. Go off yeah. about the movie. No, no. Yeah. What, what did you think of it? I mean, because I've I oh was, yeah yeah um, yeah. What did so? What, I just wanted to know what your opinion of it was. Yeah, I like I like the movie. I think I agree with what you were saying earlier about um, it centering on Ongda, so it felt much more um, whole than this one since. We are really uh, focused in on Onga, this uh, boy classmates, and like tertiary to those primary her brother, um, and it's really her trying to uh, play, focusing on Onga, um, and uh, really seeing the uh, individual player skills and tactics that are involved in playing football, especially with regards to, like, Onga was pretty dominant in um, elementary school, playing it uh, because, you know, typically girls will mature faster than boys, grow taller at, at that age, uh, so she was able to play on the same or similar level, and now that she's entering middle school and boys are also entering puberty, they are um, typically stronger than... Um, a girl's frame at that time, and especially Onga's, it seems. Um, so being able to really dig into that nitty-gritty rather than trying to learn about an entire two teams that I know nothing about um, gave the story much more uh, easily followable thrust. 
I mean, the main reason I want to talk about the movie separately was just that, you know, I, f- I feel bad because, I mean, I actually like the anime, but there was, uh, like, a decent amount of structural kind of problems with it. But, like, so I watched I watched a movie after the anime, and I wasn't, you know, I was expecting sort of similar. But, I mean, I didn't expect it to be, like, you know, kind of emotional by the end of the movie, right? Um, I mean, it's weird, but I feel like the movie actually addressed, you know, it's, it's weird because it addressed a lot of the problems out of the anime. Like, you had... Um, much less pacing problems. I mean, you. I feel like a much more attachment to the characters, um, and the story was very gripping. And like the kind of issues with like a flow of time and 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 things like that were like um, I, like things like I wanted to see in the anime. Like kind of. I mean, you don't want like a cheesy kind of sports montage sort of thing, but like the way it was used in the movie was much better, I think, than in the anime. And you felt that sort of like. Uh, camaraderie with the characters like it's an actual team or whatever more than the anime which is like uh, those are the things I, that I enjoyed about actually playing sports the most is like you have that kind of close kinship with other people and things like that and like uh, I was actually very like pleasantly surprised with the movie as a whole and like I mean if you watch the movie and then you watch uh, the TV show after that it's like you know the same characters appear but they're like I feel like they have a lot more depth in me at least and like I said, I, I didn't really expect to be kind of emotionally touched by it, but it was very like poignant, uh, you know, like the end of the movie and things like that. Yeah, and we are centering the movie on two games. The, uh, what do they call it? I don't know. It's like an underclassman game with only first and second years. Mm-hmm. But Onga participates in it. The first one is the first gear. Kanga gets injured because she is smaller than some of the second years, especially on the opposing team. Uh, and they're playing much rougher than uh, her teammates do in practice because, like, mm-hmm. during practice, you're obviously not trying to injure your your fellow teammate. Um, but then, as she, uh, well, spoilers for the movie, Chris and Ink, if you want to cover your ears for a second. Um, <laughs> as she uh, cuts her own hair and enters the game as her brother, and you see her, uh, you see her compete against them on level terms. Once she finally realizes that, like. Even against fellow girls, she is going to be undersized sometimes. She has to adjust the way that she plays, and she can't just uh, smash into everybody. She has to pass the ball around, and that's when the action really started to feel like I knew exactly what was going on, um, and I could follow uh, what Onga was doing and like getting past the defense, and like especially playing against this one particular character whose name I don't remember, but he is a uh, um, former student disciple of uh, of Onga, and he grew up to be a very talented center back and captain of the um, oh, Percy. You know. It's a. Uh... It's like I mean that's sort of the weakness of the anime in that like the three char- male characters are basically just like you know background fodder in the anime right. Um, I think they bring up a lot of the main or in the oh you mean like the characters from the movie in the series? Yeah, they're actually in the uh, series, but they're just yeah. basically like you know she always calls them like Oyabun and Kobun and <laughs> um, you know they're just basically kind of comic relief kind of background. But in the movie, you actually feel like a uh, strong connection to all three characters and they they have kind of individual personalities and it's like uh, like if they made a season two of the anime like i would like to go in a little bit more that direction where you feel like a real strong connection to the characters because in the movie like the anime uses flashbacks a lot but and then there's sometimes they're successful but sometimes they're just sort of like a waste of time and like i feel like in the movie they they had the similar kind of setup but the flashbacks were actually much more like to me impactful and like both characters the um 
I forget his name. Like her, her kind of. Uh, you were saying a minute ago, Corey. Like his, uh, her uh, kind of understudy who moved away as a kid and then he yeah, comes yeah. back as being much bigger. But like the Kobun. Kobun. Yeah, you feel <laughs> you really feel like actual rivalry and kind of like love and sort yeah, of like yeah. all those sort of you know. It's like it's like what you want to feel in like a sports setting and like I mean, if I were to watch the movie first and then and then you're like, oh, these characters are really good. And then you watch the anime, and you're like, oh, they're just kind of like, you know, goofy sidekick people. Like, it's... Do you understand? That's why, like... I mean, I'm sort of glad I saw the movie later, because then, you know, I have this... Because I, I, I would actually... I don't know how you feel, but I would recommend the movie to, like, a wide range of people. Yeah, I think the movie has... can stand alone by... I mean, obviously, it's a prequel movie, but it can stand alone uh, pretty well by itself. I wasn't really expecting much, you know, because, like, prequel be, like, whatever, but... Yeah, and and like you were saying earlier, the ability of them to use a lot of like further away kind of 3D animation, you actually get a good sense of like you know tactics and what ball movement and things like that, where you don't really get that from the anime all the time. So, um, I mean, you you expect more fluid, uh, fluid or dynamic animation than a than a TV show, right? But like, there's a, I don't know if you agree with this, but there was like a decent jump, right? Like more than you would expect. Um, than a lot of other animes where it's like, you know, when they have make a movie or whatever. Yeah. I, yeah. I can totally uh, tell you the point at which you realize this. There was a shot of uh, a crowd in front of a fence and a couple people behind that fence. And the people behind the fence actually had the lines in front of their faces. <laughs> and, 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 and there was someone on a scooter <laughs> passed from screen right to screen left and their face stayed lined the entire passage. And I was like, kudos. This is yeah. where all the budget went. <laughs> yeah. And I think with the series, we were kind of getting to that point with the Oyabu and Kobun <laughs> relationship, now that we don't remember their names and we have established them as such. Uh, between uh, Soshizaki and Kirishima, the goggles girl from Ragawa Jose. Like, we're kind of getting there at the end of the series, but it's also the end of the series, so we don't have more time to ship. And um, there's not, I mean, as far as I could tell, there wasn't going to be another competition or another game between them uh, until maybe their next year. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm looking forward to, if there is a second season, uh, if, that, if the manga is on sale on Comixology or something, I'd probably buy it all and just see, we, see what happens. It is completed at 14 volumes, so it's not like it's that, uh, that hefty like some other sports series. Um, but I, I think it, it was getting there. But the 13 episodes was not really enough to get there. And like sometimes for these long-running sports series, and like not that this is a extremely long-running one, but it does take, uh, unfortunately, like 25, 30 episodes to really, to really get going. I agree with that. I think I, I agree with what you're saying. I was also just like, there's a lot of wasted time with the kind of pacing issues to me, right? Where you're you're moving at kind of half speed, right? So even with the 13 episodes, you're really like. Like, the movie fit in more actual um, plot developments and, you know, passing the time than the anime did, right, in, like, two hours compared to, like, you know, six hours, six and a half hours of the anime. It also brought uh, some of the conflicts home a little more personally, like, the the whole chauvinistic things of girls can't play sports and you can't play on the same time as boys and etc. Your, your skills are obviously outmatched. Um, like, you get in the the series you get that on a team level and it's not really 
personally. They get their field taken away and they have to go to a further field. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you feel the impacts of the, uh, the, the societal preference towards male players. But when it gets deeply personal in the movie and it's uh, the main character getting hurt uh, and then sort of sidelined as a precaution and then just because, you know, the coach is slowly giving in to his will, you know, the frames are different, she can't possibly compete against these people. And you get all the all the discrimination piling mm-hmm. up uh, against her. And the movie does a really superb job of personalizing that um, to the point where I was really thinking back on the series is like, wow, those are all kind of really weak and glossed over <laughs> ways of showing that same conflict. It's, it's good too, because it's like, you know, they, they show those kind of chauvinistic problems and conflicts. It's like, but it's in, it's like in a realistic way where, you know, there are, there is a lot of like sexism and problems like that. And, but it's also just framed in a realistic way too. Like it is hard for girls to compete with, you know, if, um, Males are stronger and taller and things like that. Like it was, it's framed in a not in a super unrealistic like way. Like it's in, a, in a kind of a real world way, and it felt very grounded. And like that's kind of my issue with the series, where sometimes it's grounded and sometimes it's kind of. I mean, that's where I didn't like the slapstick. It's somewhat grounded, and then you'd, you'd have weird kind of like goofy jokes. Where the the movie, yeah, like it felt very like real. Like like oh, she felt like much more of a real character compared to the the series to me at least. And like hmm. it's. Those things are personal preference, but to me, like I, I like that feeling of like you know she's a character who can exist in like reality. In the movie, it felt very much like she's trying to overcome these obstacles, and then you know even the ending, it's not perfect, but she she's trying her best, and it's like I, don't, I felt very satisfied by the end. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so mm-hmm. uh, final thoughts on series slash movie. It's uh, fun. Watch it. <laughs> Do we have uh, questions to get to? Yeah, just a couple. Yeah. So, um, no, f- my final thought. I mean, I would say I would recommend the movie to almost anyone, especially anyone who likes sports, sports shows, sports anime. And if you like the movie and you want to see what happens to these characters, then I would go on to the show. But uh, like my recommendation, the movie, the show, and it's, it's not, the show's not bad, but it's it's all relative, right? But like, I would give a strong recommendation to the movie. Like, I I was. I went into it expecting, like, you know, something similar to the show, and, like, the movie is actually... Like I said, I didn't, I didn't expect to be sort of, like, emotional by the end of the movie, but I was, so... Yeah. <laughs> All right, so from uh, Navy Q Room, um, we kind of talked about the story, but particularly, or to quote, adapting a series to the point where we haven't seen the protagonist actually win a game, Genius, also Migori Veskerel. Uh, and oh. the focus is on the scene games. Uh, they technically won some games in the futsal tournament off-screen. Um, and I would say that's not genius. We kind of we kind of talked about that, but uh, we do, or I would like to see a, a sense of accomplishment with this team before we leave them for an indeterminate amount of time. I'm kind of more on their side. Uh, I, I liked just it ending on kind of not a downer, but like. Uh, not not a not a win for the team. I I'm more apt to follow that than I am to see them come away walking with a win or a substantial gain because uh, these these are characters who all just assembled this year. So they they pointed out during the series. So you know it's like this is this is them just coming together. They have two good players or three good players. That does not a team make. So, you know, they've got a long way to go. I'm, I'm happy to see them develop as far as they have been, but I, I really do like the fact that there is no solid win for them in this 
uh, this first run. I mean, me personally, I, w- I would have, I would have liked to see a little more sense of like forward momentum, right? Like, um, not to reverence the movie again, but the movie doesn't really show like actual victories that much either. But you have the sense of like, uh, Onda is building toward her goal of, um, you know, of, or or she, or, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of, she doesn't really achieve all her goals, but you feel like the sense that it's like progress is being made and like. Um, I mean, you don't really have to show the team winning all the time, but I would have liked to see a little bit more of, like, the sense of cohesiveness. Like, the team is really – I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a cheesy, like, kind of sports movie kind of trope, but, like, the sense of the team is sort of more coming together where, like, uh, they are somewhat, but it's more of, like, open-ended. Like, we're going to keep working for the future. And, like, I mean, it's, it, it depends on your taste, but I would have liked to see a lot of, like, like – like like I said, like, in the movie where you have a sense of, like, uh, things are accomplished, but, you know, maybe other – people feel a different way than I do. Uh, Alright, so I think that is pretty mm-hmm. good. For for this episode, uh, let's close the out. Where can we find everyone online? Chris? Um, uh, on Twitter, uh, at Antonius Pius. Kenny? Uh, Minoru79, M-I-N-O-R-U 79, uh, where I post a lot of dumb garbage, so thank you. Uh, Inc. Over on the Tweety Box at uh, Animated Inc. You can also check me out at uh, anagamers.com. I co-host the Old Talk New Radio podcast. Uh, and you can go check out some back issues of Otaku USA and uh, Fandom Post. I've got uh, reviews and articles and such there. You can find me on Twitter at PassionateK. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Taiku Podcasts. Uh, that's T-A-I-I-K-U. And you can find all of our episodes over at TaikuPodcast.com. And thank you all for coming on talking about uh, soccer anime, football anime, whatever we call it. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was a blast. Yeah, I think this will be the uh, the best option. I don't have my laptop with me today. That's all right. We'll uh, we'll work through it. It's all good, son. Yep. Treat it like treat it like I'm like an important radio show guest that I'm calling in. <laughs> yeah, they always get like the most important people, and they sound like ass every time they say like NPR. <laughs> so, Chris, what's the latest news you have on uh, the Bengals and the crap? Who's their starting quarterback? Burrow. Joe Burrow. Um. Joe Burrow is going to die um, <laughs> because they they decided to take to, to, uh, take Jamar Chase instead of Penny Soul and uh, they can't protect him at all. <laughs> there we go. Now it's official.